0: Luke chapter 1, we're in a series of Advent, Um, we thought about, should we try to name it something different, we really thought, our plan all along, if you've been with us in the fall, we preached through a series called the story of God, and we wanted to show how the story of God continues into the story of Jesus, the story of God's not over, okay, it didn't end in the Old Testament, We, we tried, I mean three months, we covered the entire Old Testament, there were so many places we could have dove off, but we didn't, and we made it to Jesus, and now the story of God continues because Jesus is coming. And that's what Advent is all about, this anticipation, this hopeful expectation that God's going to send the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the anointed one, and he's going to bring the salvation that we've been looking for the whole time in the Old Testament. So we're in an Advent series, we're starting the book of Luke, and we're actually in January just going to keep going in the book of Luke and try to make our way towards Easter and towards the cross and kind of show you a picture of the life of Jesus, but we want you to remember this is all a part of the story of God. The story of God's not over. So that's why we're in Luke. If you're new this morning, we got these awesome scripture journals. I hope there's enough if you don't have one. We really want you to have one. It's on one side of the page is the scripture. On the other side of the page is lines for you to write. And it's just a really cool way for you to take notes and feel okay to write in your Bible if you've never done that before. So if you have a copy of God's word, Luke chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 26. And we're going to read through verse 55. And I'm going to read the whole thing and it's going to take us a minute, but that's okay. So I'm just going to warn you on ahead of time. We're going to read about 29 or 30 verses, and we're going to pray, and then we're going to talk about what God's word says. So Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, when we open your word We have the expectation and the hope that we're going to see something about who you are. So would you open our eyes to see that this morning? Would you open our hearts to receive it, God? And as we see you, would you teach us the right way to respond? And God, we ask that you would change us this morning. Lord, speak to my heart. Would you pray that with me? Lord, speak to my heart. And Lord, as you speak, that we would know that it's you. In Jesus' name, amen. So what happens when God comes to us? What happens when heaven meets earth? When the divine touches the human? What happens? You could go back and read Greek mythology and see the stories that they wrote thousands of years ago. You could come up in your own mind what you think might happen, but here's the reality. Whatever we think might happen, whatever we think should happen, is irrelevant because in this text, we know what happens when God, when the Almighty, comes down to humanity. We know what happens. We see it in this text because this text is all about an ordinary girl encountering the majestic God. That's what this whole text is about. Ordinary girl encountering the majestic God. And so I'm going to divide this message up into two parts. The first is what is God like? And the second is how we ought to respond. And we'll see that from the example of Mary. What is God like and how should we respond? So let's just dive into the first part. What is God like? The first thing we learn is that God is graciously close to the lowly. And I want to look at the first part of the text That Gabriel was sent from God, so Gabriel's not here of his own accord, he's not here from uh, just, he decided to come and make something happen on God's uh, behalf, and God was kind of in the dark about it. God told Gabriel, and we know from earlier in chapter 1, that Gabriel stands in God's presence, he said, Gabriel, I want you to go and I want you to say this to this person at this time. Right, So he's there on orders of the Almighty. So he was sent directly from God to relay a message to Mary. But look at who Mary is. A city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, a little word in there, city, it, it's not so clean in the original language. Scholars read that word and they go, yeah, but we know something about Nazareth. And city is a little overstatement there. It's not quite a city. It's not really even a town maybe village does justice i mean it's a tiny place it's a tiny overlooked it's like a little village in a part of the country that is mostly overlooked itself so god almighty sends his angel that stands in his presence to this tiny overlooked place and then who does he send the angel to he sends it to a girl named mary she was a virgin she was betrothed to be married to a guy named Joseph who was of the house of David. So Joseph is in the line of David. If you were here during the story of God, that matters because God promised through David's bloodline, through his lineage, was going to come this savior king. But Mary's not even in the line. It says Joseph is. So Mary's not in the line of succession of God's plan. Mary's in this overlooked place, this ordinary small village. And then it says Mary's betrothed to be married. She's this In this day and age, she probably was 13 or 14 years old. That's when people got married then. So betrothed is the Bible word for engaged. So think, she's engaged to be married. She's this young teenager. She's completely ordinary. She's completely overlooked. There's nothing special about her biblically. There's nothing special about Mary at all. In fact, Luke goes to great lengths to show you there is nothing about Mary that made God choose her. That's the first thing we see about God in this text is that he is graciously close to the lowly. His sovereign grace comes to those who do not deserve it, didn't earn it, do nothing to be noticed. He's coming to an ordinary overlooked girl in an ordinary overlooked town to tell the most extraordinary message that could ever be proclaimed. That's the kind of God we serve. Look at Psalm 34, 18. It says that God is near to the brokenhearted. In Isaiah 57, God is talking and he says, I dwell in the high and holy places and I dwell with the lowly and the contrite to heal their hearts and to revive them. God's dwelling in two places, the highest and the holiest, which none of us have any capabilities of getting there to be with God. And he dwells in the lowest In most broken places, we all have hope to be there and to find God. So if you're going to find God this morning, it's not going to be because you're up here. It's going to be because you're low. Because that's what God is showing us in the very first verses of this text, is that God chooses the smallest, the lowest. He didn't choose the most famous. He didn't choose the biggest. He didn't choose the one that already had an incredible platform. He chose Mary. So I wonder when you think of God, do you think of some distant, scary, judgmental being that's just waiting to punish people? Or when you hear the word holy, we're in the south, we're in Georgia, even if you're not from here, which I know many of you are not from here, you've had some exposure to the Bible belt or what's passing away from the old Bible belt. So you know church folks and religious folks and people who say they go to church and then you work with them and you're like, hold on, I don't know a lot about church, but I don't see the, you know, the Bible Belt way of life. So when you think of the word holy, what comes to mind? This holier-than-thou attitude that you can't associate with these kinds of people, that you kind of have your life perfectly in order and you're living a certain way and you've got everything in line? Does it bring up thoughts of people who have an attitude of being better than everyone else, so good maybe that they didn't even want to associate with you? The fact is we all have a conception in our mind of God and holiness and of those things being completely separate from something that's messy or broken or lowly. But in this text, God destroys that lie. He does it many places in the Bible, but none are so powerful. as right here in Luke 1. The text uses two words I want you to notice. And if you're using your scripture journal, circle them. He uses the word favored in verse 28. And in verse 30, he says, you have found favor with God. And this word is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 1 when it says that God has blessed us. Mary has found grace with God. Literally, it means Mary has been graced by God. So when you think of God, high and holy, pure and righteous, don't think of a God who's ready and excited and can't wait to jump and punish Because that's not the God of the Bible. Think of a God who's high and holy and cannot wait to use his almighty perfect authority to stoop down and lift you up with him. That is the God of the Bible. That's the God of Luke 1. That's what he's doing with Mary. So the first thing we learn about God is that he is graciously close to the lowly. The second thing we learn about God is that his plan has always been about Jesus. Let's move on to Gabriel's announcement. After Gabriel calms Mary down, she's worried, she's troubled. Wait, why is God here? What what sort of trouble am I in? He says, no, 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 you found favor with God. You're going to conceive in your womb, you're going to have a son. Now look what he says about the son. In verses 31 through 33. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The name Jesus, if you were to write it in Hebrew and say it in the Old Testament language, the way the Old Testament was written, you would actually say Joshua. And that name, Yeshua, means God is salvation. So she's saying, you're going to have a son And you're going to call him God is salvation. So quite literally, Gabriel is saying, when you have your baby, salvation is here. Now, I mentioned earlier that in the fall, we preached through this series called The Story of God. And we tried to give a flyover in three months of the Old Testament. And it was uh, much harder than we thought it would be. And we struggled with where do we dive in and where do we fly over and where do we summarize and where do we drill down for a week? But the one thing we wanted to do in every single message on every single Sunday was we wanted to show that Jesus is the thread that ties the entire Bible together. He's the thread that ties every Old Testament story together. So God's perfect plan was centered on Jesus. The entire Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, showing us our need for Jesus, building anticipation for Jesus, and that's exactly what Gabriel is saying to Mary right here. Mary was no doubt, even though she was young, acquainted with the Old Testament. She had some understanding of the Old Testament. She had some understanding, as every first century Jewish person did, that the story of God was not over. They were waiting for the Messiah. They they were waiting for the Christ, for this Savior, for this anointed King to come. They knew that someone was going to come and be a better King than David. And they were waiting anxiously because they knew the story could not be done because of how much brokenness still existed in the world. But here we are in Luke 1 with an ordinary girl in an overlooked town being told that this one that the entire Old Testament is about, he's coming. And he says, Mary, he's coming through you. He'll be great. His kingdom will literally never end. His reign will never be overthrown. He's going to receive the throne of his father, David. What does that mean? Well, we preached this and you could go find the podcast. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God tells David, your son is going to reign forever. He's going to be king over my people forever. And Gabriel's telling Mary, this is your child. God's plan has always been about Jesus. And look how this is related to the first point, that God wants to be so close to us that he sends Jesus to save us. God did not leave us destined for doom and wrath and separation from him. He came to be with us so that Isaiah 57 15 says he could revive us, he could bring us back to life. That's the hope that Jesus brings. So in Advent, we're celebrating the coming of Jesus. And I remember Al asking this the last two years and I'm going to ask it to us all right now. We're celebrating the coming of Jesus, but have you celebrated the coming of Jesus into your own heart and life? Have you had your own personal Advent where Christ comes and changes everything? Because God's plan is all pointing to Jesus. In an Advent, we're pointing to Jesus saying, he's come, he's come, he's come, he's born, the Savior of the world. And I would hate for us to get through the entire Christmas season with the beautiful decorations and the wonderful songs and we're preaching about the coming of Jesus and Jesus has never come into your own heart and life. But I want to make it obviously clear that if he's not come into your life then none of the glory of what we're talking about today, the joy of what we're talking about today, it's not come to you yet. But God's heart is that he would come down to you and say, come on. I want to come in. Just come to me. So that's what we learn about God is that his plan has always been pointing to Jesus. So God's graciously close to the lowly. His plan's always been pointing to Jesus. And the last thing we learn about God is that nothing is impossible for him. Mary's natural question, if you picked up the theme of the text, is that she's not married. She's never known a man. She's a virgin. So she replies to Gabriel and says, how? How? How is this going to happen? Now, let me first say this, that Mary's virginity did not surprise God. He didn't have to do a quick change of plans and realize, oh, she's not married yet. Like, God didn't lose the save the date to Mary and Joseph's wedding. Okay, God didn't get the dates wrong and be like, you were supposed to be married last month, and this was going to work this. No, God knew exactly what he was doing. By coming to this lowly, ordinary, overlooked girl in this ordinary, overlooked town who had no possible way to get pregnant. It was a miracle that Elizabeth gave birth, but there was at least a natural explanation. Mary, no no natural explanation to the virgin birth. This is one of the core tenets of the Christian faith, that Jesus came through a virgin. One who had never known a man is literally what the text said. So how could this birth happen? This is exactly what Mary is saying right here in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be? God intentionally chose the Virgin Mary so that he could show his infinite power to do the impossible. If you skip down and you see in verse 37, it says nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. The the way that Gabriel answers Mary actually brings us all the way back to Genesis 1 because he says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Let's go back to Genesis 1. Do you remember? It says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And what was happening at that time? Nothing. It was just void, chaos, darkness. But it says the Spirit's hovering over the deep waters. And it's, it's kind of this language of he's hovering over with the intention of creating life. The Spirit's hovering, making, ordering, bringing life and order out of chaos and darkness. And that's exactly what Gabriel's saying here. Hey, remember the Spirit? that's hovering over the deep, dark waters in Genesis 1. He's going to come and hover over you and life is going to be brought into your womb. He's going all the way back to the beginning saying, hey, this is what God's doing. He's going to bring life where life should not exist. So he brings us all the way back to the creation account and shows us it's going to come through the Holy Spirit. But I don't want to discount the fact that the virgin birth is one of the great mysteries of our faith, and that the Bible doesn't give us a detailed scientific explanation of how this happened. And that's because the Bible's not a science textbook. That's not what the Bible was intended to do. That's not what Luke was intending to do. What Luke was intending to do was to show us God's infinite power. There's a way, and guess what? I'm I'm assuming when we're with God in his presence, he could maybe tell us how he supernaturally moved this cell to this cell and did these things, and he supernaturally implanted, but we need to know that God is Lord over the reproductive system. God created it in the first place. He fashioned the human body out of nothing. So it's not too small a thing for him to make that human body do something that he didn't design it to do in the first place. That's the power of our God. So in this text, we've seen three things about God. He is graciously close to the lowly. His plan has always been about Jesus, and nothing is impossible for him. So how in the world should we be responding to this kind of God? And in this text, Mary acts as our example. First, we should aspire to be humble and lowly, not proud and arrogant. We talked about Psalm 34, 18. God is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Isaiah 57, 15. The one who, this is the the verse in full. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Holy. This is what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Look at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Jesus is teaching his disciples. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. This is quite a different aspiration than what our world normally rewards. We're taught to step on anyone in our way as we move up to the top of whatever league, whatever business, whatever class we're in. Push others down so I can get up is what's rewarded in our day and age. But the Bible teaches something completely opposite. See, we're taught today to seek fame, glory, and honor from others, but we see from Mary that God favored her even though she was lowly, ordinary, and overlooked. When we dig deeper, we see that God actually values these things in all people. It's a quote from a book called Humility by a guy named C.J. Mahaney, and he says, God does not help those who help themselves. You could go find the statistics of how many people, I mean, it's, a staggeringly high amount of people who think that is actually a Bible verse. God helps those who help themselves. That's actually completely contrary to everything the Bible ever says. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who humble themselves. So what's humility and how do we get in on it? The only real and honest way to humble ourselves is to look at ourselves in light of who God is. We gotta look at ourselves in light of who God is because here's what happens. If I look at myself in light of who you are, I'll find some flaw in your character and you'll find a lot of flaws in my character and you'll be able to exalt yourself in some areas and say, well, I'm better than Johnny at X, Y, and Z and I'll look at you and i am say, I'm, I'm a little bit better than this person in A, B, C and all of a sudden, we've got this pride battle going on. You say like, yeah, I'm, I'm not too bad. Isn't that the way people talk about religion? They go, I mean, I know I'm not perfect but look at most people, right? I mean, I'm not, and then you, you name the classics, right? I'm not like Hitler, Right, well, hold on a second. In that situation, you've exalted yourself with some sort of pride as if you have a leg to stand on in the presence of the Almighty. But the only true way to humility is to look at yourself in light of the perfect one, the most high. When we see what true power looks like embodied in God, we'll realize we don't have any. When we realize what true righteousness looks like in Jesus, we certainly won't boast in the few rules we try to follow. When we realize what infinite wisdom is, we won't take so much pride in being smart. When we realize what true love is in the sacrifice of Jesus for those who hated him, then we won't want others to praise us for our little acts of kindness that we used to think were so awesome. And we could go on and on with qualities of God that we don't compare with him and we think we have it okay. But when we look at ourselves in light of who he is, we realize we are nothing. There's one surefire way to get in the path of God so that he will bless you, so that you will see him and you will encounter God, and that is to get low. The first thing we see from Mary is that we should aspire to be humble and lowly, not proud and arrogant. The truth is, in a 100 years, it's likely that no one on earth will know any of our names. No one will know us. Your great-great-grandchildren, maybe just your great-grandchildren, may never know you. And the sad reality is, if they know you, they may not care. That's humbling. 100 years, gone. Every memory of you, gone. Every trace that you were here, gone. The Bible says it like this, your life is a mist, and it's here, and it's gone. What pride can you take in that? None. None. But what hope is there in that? Isaiah 57 15. That God dwells with the lowly. So, if we want to be a people at Shaliford that encounter God, we have one direction we must go down. So long as we stay above the smoke line, we'll never encounter God. But we've got to get low and admit our helplessness, admit our neediness. Admit, and this is hard because we've all been taught our whole lives that we're unique and you're this shining star that can achieve whatever you want to accomplish, but we're all ordinary. That's okay. Right? That's, we're one of eight billion people. That's all right. That's the kind of people God chooses to make himself known to. He takes the ordinary and the overlooked and he says, you don't have anything to boast about. Come to me. Come to me let 's aspire to be humble. The second thing we learn from Mary is to submit to the perfect plan of God. Again, I can point you back to the story of god 's sermon series where we try to show you that the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for your salvation, that the gospel was not an accident or an afterthought God didn't create the world with the expectation that we would. Get it right the first time or the second time or the thousandth time. God knew that we wouldn't, and so from the get-go, he planned Jesus. He planned a Savior who would make everything right. Genesis 3.15, the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. and He'll bruise his heel, but guess what? The head of the evil one that represents sin and evil and death will be crushed. There's going to come one who's going to reverse everything that went wrong. The plan of God was Jesus all along, and this plan was not an afterthought. Because when we realize, like Mary, that God's plan from the very beginning was to send Jesus, then we'll see that we are a part of a much larger plan. The gospel is not just a one-time pill that we swallow that saves our life in case of an emergency, that when we die, all of a sudden, our destination ends up being better than we thought, and between here and death, we're good. The gospel is the good news that God has always had a plan to save you, bring you to Himself, and redeem you out of sin. So when Mary saw this sweeping plan arrive at her feet, how did she respond? Verse 38 Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary didn't look back at God and say, Give me the good. This is going to be bad. I'm gonna be pregnant. Everyone's gonna assume me and Joseph have already slept together even though we're not married yet. Uh, the looks at me are gonna be horrible. I mean, it's gonna be obvious at some point that I'm with child and, man, the shame. God, no, but still send the Messiah so that I can still get saved, but not, no, not me. Mary saw that this plan of God had come and it was coming and she was right in the wake of it, right? Right? You look at a hurricane on the news and they're trying to predict the path and you go, hey, they're right smack in the middle of where this thing's coming. And you're going to feel the wrath, right, of that hurricane. You're going to feel the wrath of that storm. Mary was right smack in the middle of where the plan of God was going and how did she respond? I'm your servant, God. Let it be. Let it be to me according to your word. There's nothing I can do to get out of the way of your plan. She realized that the plan of God was about to sweep her up and carry her with it. So here's the truth of the story of God that maybe we should have been repeating from day one. We don't just want you to know the story of God. We want you to get swept up in the story of God so that you become a character in it. And now you're living in light of what God's plan has been the whole time. Will you submit to the story of God? You realize God's plan, like we've said, has been all about Jesus from the get-go. All about Jesus. Will you submit to that story? Will you submit to the plan of God for your life? Which is not just some specific, I want you to have this career at this time and marry this person and have this job and then move to this house and then this city. Oh, look, all those things are gonna take care of themselves. But God's more interested in that while you're doing all those changes, you've got Jesus in your life. That's the plan of God. That Jesus is informing all of those decisions. So will we submit like Mary to what God is doing? And again, this is right along the lines of humbling ourselves. We've got to lay down our plans to get in on what God is doing. What is he doing? He's still working all over the world to connect the story of God to the stories of people. That's exactly what we're doing here at Shalford. We exist to connect the story of God to your story. We exist to connect the story of God to your story because it does connect. And our prayer as we try to do that is that you and we would submit to God's perfect plan and his perfect story. Third thing we can learn from Mary in this text. We should believe the promises of God. If you look at verses 39 through 45 you see when Mary gets to Elizabeth how Elizabeth responds and there's so much good things there if we had more time we could talk about the grace of God and giving Mary a friend like Elizabeth they were actually cousins I mean imagine Mary going okay I'm gonna be pregnant who's gonna stay my friend right I'm not married yet I'm pregnant do I have any friends she gets to Elizabeth and Elizabeth's excited she probably goes oh thank you God Right? We could spend time preaching sermons on that and, there's, and then preaching about, hey, what was, what was John the Baptist's first prophecy? I don't know if Al talked about this last week, but what's his first prophecy? Well, it's right here when he's still in the womb. Jesus is a few days old at this point in the womb, right? Because you have the announcement from Gabriel, you're going to be with child. Boom. Holy Spirit begins to work this miracle of Jesus in Mary's womb. Mary then goes into the presence of Elizabeth. John the Baptist is in her womb. What does John the Baptist do? He leaps for joy. From the womb, John the Baptist is pointing to Jesus. So there's all these things we could talk about in this text, but I want to learn one thing from Mary, and it's that what Elizabeth says in verse 45. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. I want to pick up on one of the nuances of this story. Remember, Luke's a story. So if we're reading it straight through, you're going straight from Zechariah, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, then all of a sudden Mary and then look at what it says in verse 39. Mary went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And then verse 40, whose house did she go in? The house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So while this exchange is going on, in all likelihood, Zechariah is standing there. Remember last week? Not talking. Okay? Mute. Didn't believe what God told him, so Gabriel said, all right, fine. You're not going to talk till the baby's born. So then Elizabeth is talking to Mary, saying, blessed are you of women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Zechariah standing here. And, and I just imagine Elizabeth looking at Zechariah and go, and blessed is the one who believed what God said. <laughs> right? I mean, ca- capture some of what Luke's doing here. Zechariah is standing there, and he didn't believe, and Mary does believe. Mary serves as a beautiful picture for us that when we humble ourselves, when we get swept up in the story of God, it is a blessing to believe the promises of God. That's the third thing. We should believe the promises of God. This is why Mary was blessed. Because when she humbled herself and she submitted to God's plan, then she was freed to put her faith in what God was doing. Number four, we should rejoice in the grace of God. We should rejoice in the grace of God. If you have a copy of God's Word or you're looking at your scripture journal, you can see in verse 46, uh, all of a sudden it goes from just normal lines of text to something kind of like poetry. And that's because this song is called the Magnificat. That word comes from the Latin version of the Bible. That was the first word of this song. So they just kind of called it that as the title. But this is Mary's song. She sings this song out of a response to what God is doing. And the first part of this song, she rejoices. Look what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. When Mary realizes the truth that we see, that God desires to be graciously close to the lowly, when she catches that, she gets swept up in that, it leads her heart to rejoice. Because she goes, "With me? You're going to be close to me. The Most High, the Almighty, the Creator. Close to me? Blessing Me? Personally, you realize you're the object of blessing of the one who sits enthroned above everything. The right response, Scripture tells us how to respond. It doesn't leave us to guess. The right response is joy. Rejoicing in what God is doing. The very fact that God is who he is and then he's willing to come down to the lowly is a reason to rejoice because we're not left hopeless and wandering. If God is all that he says he is, then he's the greatest cause of joy any of us could ever know. I think of Psalm 103 when I read this text. And that psalm says, don't forget the benefits of the Lord. That he heals you, he forgives you, he redeems you. And I I keep thinking of it like this. All that God is, he is towards us, Right? And the, the best way I think I could illustrate this, I've thought about it all week. And it's hard, it's hard for me to put this into words, but for all of who God is, is towards us. I want you to picture a football game. We get the joy of watching football. I had the joy, although hindsight, I don't know how much joy it was of playing football for many years. But we get the joy of watching football. And guess what? We don't have to feel the pain they feel during or after the game, right? I don't feel the pain of what it feels like for an NFL linebacker to come bearing down on me as I'm exposed throwing a football in maybe the perfect position for all 250 pounds of him to drill me in the ground. Because all that linebacker is at that moment, all of his workouts, all of his strength, all of his might, all of his goal is aimed toward that quarterback. And that quarterback is going to feel all that he is. And we may root for that linebacker. We may cheer for that linebacker. We may be excited for that linebacker. But all that he is is not aimed towards us. We don't feel that pain. We don't feel that tackle. We don't feel it that day or the next day or any days after that. We're just watching from the outside. And you may feel like your team lost or your team won, but you don't really feel like your team lost or your team won. You don't have ice packs on your body after the game. All that that linebacker is is aimed towards that quarterback. All that God is. Who is he? Remember we learned this in the first part of the sermon. He's gracious. He's infinitely powerful. He is Jesus. All that he is is aimed towards us so as to come at us so that we may feel the full weight of the effects of who God is in our lives. God's not an object to be looked at at a distance. God's not a museum exhibit. God's a person to know, to feel, to experience, to encounter. All that he is, he is towards us in the person of Jesus. And this should lead us to rejoice as we experience him. Fifth and the last thing we learned from Mary. We should celebrate the work of God. The rest of this song, she goes on and she actually uses the past tense. He has done great things for me. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down and he exalted and he filled and he sent away and he helped. It's past tense. But wait, Jesus hasn't come yet. This was a way of speaking in prophetic language that you're so sure that God's gonna do what he said he's gonna do that you talk about it in the past tense. That's pretty sure, right? That's like saying like, I got paid on January 1st. Well, Al's not fired me yet, so I hope I get paid on January 1st. But it's not January 1st yet, so no, I haven't gotten paid. Like in English, we're like, you can't say that. But that was a way that they talked in prophetic language to say, I'm sure that this is going to happen in the future, so I'm going to talk about it as if it's already happened. And she's celebrating the work of God. What is the work of God that she's celebrating? It's in line with this whole text. The same theme that God graciously desires to come to the lowly. What does the text say? He brings down the mighty and the proud. He humbles them. But what does he do with the humble? He exalts them. What does he do with the hungry who need food? He fills them. What does he do with the rich who are proud, feel like I can take care of myself? He sends them away. He sends them away. This is the work of God to exalt the humble to save the needy, to come to the lowly, and to save them. And it's fitting that Mary ends with a reference to Abraham. Because if you remember the story of God, I'll encourage you, if you weren't here, I want to encourage you to go to our website, go to our podcast, Woodstock Church Shelf, you can listen to those sermons. But it's fitting that she ends with a reference to Abraham because that's kind of where this whole thing began. God promised Abraham that he was going to have an offspring that would bless all the nations. So ever since, the people of God have been looking forward to the blesser. Who's going to be the blesser? The one who blesses all the nations. Now the blesser is coming through Mary. And looking back at this lens through Luke 1, looking back at Abraham, we, we see what the promise was to Abraham, right? It's going to bless all the nations. So what Mary is celebrating here in the work of God is she's celebrating God's global mission to bring a people to himself. She's celebrating the work of God among the nations. It's impossible to talk about the coming of Jesus without referencing his work for the nations. That's why every year the International Mission Board has the Lottie Moon Christmas offering where every dime goes directly to the field to support missionaries. If you've not given, you can give today right on your check, Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Make a note as you give online, Lottie Moon Christmas offering and all of that money is gonna go to People like Craig and Jeannie who are serving in the Middle East. It's going to go to people like Joey, and his wife, and seven kids who live in Kenya. It's going to help keep them on the field doing the work of God, fulfilling and continuing. What are they doing on the field, Johnny? What are they doing? They're living out the story of God. They got swept up in it. Now they're telling everybody they can how the story of God can change their story.